I know we always enjoy the fellowship. It's always hard to cut it short. Leviticus chapter 23. We're in a series during Lent that we began last week as we introduced it on the Levitical feasts. These are found in Leviticus chapter 23. The Levitical feasts are a portion of Scripture that perhaps um, you've never read. You've heard about it because Jesus often refers to the feasts in the New Testament. But what do they really mean? What's their historical context? And how does that truth help change our life today? So we're going to look and see how the Levitical feasts point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so would you give your attention, please, to God's word? I'm going to begin reading at Leviticus chapter 23, of verse 4. And I'll go down through verse 8. Would you stand, if you're able, out of respect for God's word? This is the word of the Lord. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the appointed time for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. When you move to Oklahoma, you begin to hear all kinds of stories about Indian legends. There's one. You may have heard about the Indian legend about the elders who sat above the plains and they had to decide, where do you take the secret to joy and contentment and hide it from man? Because obviously the Indian elders said, man has abused the secret of joy and contentment. He's abused it. He's murdered his brother. He's stolen goods. He's been greedy for gain. He can't handle the secret. So where are you going to put it? And so the legend goes that all these Indian elders sat around together and they said, where can we put the secret of joy and contentment so that man will never be able to find it? One of the elders stood up and he said, Sirs, sirs, I know where we can put the secret of joy and contentment in a place where man will never find it. Let's take it and let's haul it up to the tallest mountain in the world. Let's put it in the sky, in the clouds, because man will surely never be able to find it up there. So the legend, they talked together and they decided that that was not going to work. And that elder stood up and said, no, sir, no, sir. Man's persistence will eventually bring him to the highest mountain in the world and there he's going to find it. So they talked amongst themselves for a little while longer and the next elder stood up and he said, sirs, sirs, I know where we can put the secret of joy and contentment where man will never find it. Let's take it and let's plummet to the deepest valley beneath the ocean's surface. For man can't breathe under the water. Surely there he won't be able to find it. And they discussed this among themselves. And another elder said, no, no, this will not work. Man is fiercely curious. He will eventually plumb the depths of the deepest oceans. And he will there find the secret at the lowest valley of the earth. And finally, the wisest of the elders stood up, the oldest that was there, and he stood up and he said, I know what we should do with the secret of joy and contentment. And the legend goes that this wise old sage stood up and he says, You shall take the secret of joy and contentment, and you shall lodge it just behind his heart. 
Because man is so fiercely independent, he will never look there. And all the elders agreed, yes. Lodge it behind the heart of man. For in his pride, he will never be able to turn inward and look. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a feast that was given to Israel in Leviticus chapter 23 to be a commendation of what God did for Israel in the Exodus. You remember that the Exodus was the story where God delivered his people out from under the thumb of Pharaoh. And he took them and he set them free. And he set them free during the night when he said, you are to kill a lamb and you are to take the blood of that lamb and you are to put it on your doorpost and on the lintels above the door. And you are to be ready and fully dressed. And when I tell you to go, you should not wait for your dough to rise. You shall eat unleavened bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread throughout the history of Israel was always celebrated right after the Seder Feast of Passover, which happened on the 14th of Nisan. On the 14th of Nisan, they killed a lamb like we talked about last week. And they ate the Seder feast. And immediately after that, Jews throughout history have searched their house for leaven. Now what is leaven? Leaven is one of five grains that the Jews would use to cause their dough to rise or their bread to rise. There's all kinds of leavening agents today. But the Jews would use a biological leavening agent that would help their dough to rise. It was one of five different grains that they would use called hemets. And the Jews were to search all through their house, and they would have a spoon, a feather, and a candle. And still today, if you go to any Jewish bookstore and you say, hey, I want to prepare for the Passover, they will give you a spoon, they will sell you a feather, and they will sell you a candle. And you're to take this spoon, this feather, and this candle, and you are to use the light of the candle to illumine the corners of your house, the feather to blow the dust onto the spoon, and the spoon to then take it to the fire and burn it. And the reason why God gave them this feast is to say, not only have I called you out of Egypt, not only have I delivered you from the hand of Pharaoh, but when I take you out in my deliverance, I intend to make you who I've called you to be. And that is a holy people. And that is a people who are ready to obey me at my word. And so every year, at the 15th of Nisan, just after the Paschal Feast, they would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was a pilgrimage feast. When you hear the word Passover, there's two different ways to hear it. Specifically, the word Passover refers to the Seder feast that happens on the 14th of Nisan. But when you talk about the Passover in general, it actually includes the Passover, all of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted seven days, and, as we're going to see next week, the Feast of first fruits. That's what Jews typically called Passover. So when people go to Jerusalem for Passover, they're going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The night before, which is technically the Passover meal. But the entire week is the Feast of Unleavened Bread where they are to rid themselves of all that hinders them in their walk with God. And it starts on a holy day, a Sabbath, and it ends on a holy day. A Sabbath. 
And these Sabbaths don't necessarily fall on a Saturday as they did for the Jewish calendar. Whatever day the 15th of Nisan was, that day was a holy convocation. That's what the text means when you read the word holy convocation. It was a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And the point of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was for all of God's people to know that not only has God delivered you from sin, not only has he saved you, but he intends you to be what he created you to be. Be who you are. That's the point of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that's the historical context. That's what you read about when you read Leviticus chapter 23. But when you and I hear this, when I hear this, I just got to be honest, like in preparing this sermon, when I hear that there are feasts that are set apart to help me find the leaven in my heart, guys, there, is, there are all sorts of things in my life that cover up the leaven of my heart. The question for every one of us is not, have you been delivered? The question is, are you living the life that God has called you to be? And that's the question that this text begs of us this morning. If God called you to leave the only life you've ever known, to leave Egypt and to follow him, could you do it? Would you do it? Are you doing it? Where is your leaven? Where is your leaven? Where is the sin in your life that's hiding itself so that you do not find it? Where is your leaven? Well, for me, um, and maybe for you, it's behind my busyness. The unleavened bread began and ended on a Sabbath. Why? Because it's very hard to separate work and rest today. It's very hard to separate work and rest, isn't it? Like 15 years ago, when you came home from work, you came home from work. But today, when you have that phone in your pocket, work goes home with you, doesn't it? You're never unplugged. You're never free. You're always within the reach of your employer. Always. And it takes considerable effort for us to be able to do the simple things like be able to lay our phones down and be with our family. Listen, let's trade places for a second. Like, I need to hear that too. There's an article, an op-ed in the New York Times not long ago called The Busy Trap. And Tom Kreider, who wrote the op-ed, said that busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Well, obviously, your life cannot be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, if you are completely booked, if you are in demand every minute of the day. Some of us cover up deep systemic sins in our life by our frenetic pace. Yes, we want to be good parents. Yes, we want to make sure our kids get to practice. But deep beneath that frenetic busyness is a leaven that's causing our pride to rise. Where is your leaven? It's behind your busyness. Where is your leaven? Well, maybe it's behind your pride. The Jews would get a spoon, a feather, and a candle. 
Christians today get God's holy word, the preaching of the word, the Holy Spirit to help us identify where that leaven is in our lives. Kevin DeYoung wrote a book called Crazy Busy, and in it, he says that there are seven faces of pride. They all start with P's, so forgive the preacher alliteration, but here they go. Pride keeps you from understanding yourself because your struggle is not that you're pursuing pleasure. It's that you're just not pursuing pleasure enough. You're taking pleasure in the wrong thing. You're settling for that which does not really satisfy you. And there are seven faces of your pride beneath which you hide yourself to find your identity and your satisfaction. Number one, people-pleasing. I cannot obey what God calls me to do or I will lose the approval of others. I'm motivated by fear. Two, pats on the back. I, I cannot obey or I um, will lose other people's praises. This is a motivation for desire and for glory. People pleasing, pats on the back. Three, to prove myself. I cannot obey until I have proven myself worthy. I cannot obey until I achieved a certain income level. I cannot obey. I, cannot, I can't tithe until I make a certain amount of money. I can't possibly d- take a day off and rest my heart until I've accomplished whatever it is. Power. I cannot obey because I will lose control. Listen, I'm just not willing to take that risk, Jesus. Perfectionism. I cannot obey or my performance will slip. Prestige. I cannot obey until I've obtained a certain status, until I'm in the club, until I've reached a certain level in my company's organizational chart. Or pity. Listen, if I obey people, if I go, if I leave, if I leave everything and follow you, Jesus, people will not be as impressed with the burdens that I've been bearing. If I really believe in grace, it's going to mean that I have to give up all of these things I've so long strived for. And I will not have the sympathy from other people. People pleasing, pats on the back, proving yourself, power, perfectionism, prestige, pity. Listen, these are the faces of pride. And these are the things that prevent us from experiencing the kind of deep longing and lasting joy that God wants his people to have. Where is your leaven? It's behind your busyness. It's behind your pride. It's behind the false notions of grace. You remember the story in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? It's a story of a man who um, uh, slept with his father's wife. He committed incest. Leviticus 18 says you should not sleep with your father's wife. And Paul flies off the handle at these Corinthians because here's a guy walking in sexual immorality and they just refuse to address it. They refuse to address it. And here's what he says. It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? 
Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Your boasting, verse 6, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. That is, you've been set apart in Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and of evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. Some of us love to be in the Reformed faith because we talk so much about grace, grace, grace. It has freed you from all your sins, yes. But a false notion of grace is not what you are called to believe. And a false notion of grace says this, if I sin, God's going to forgive me. Blake always says grace will always extend the beyond, the beyond, beyond the bounds of your sin. Yes. But it also says don't put the Lord your God to the test. It also says be holy as I am holy. Listen, grace will cover. It will always outpace the speed of your sin. Yes, it will. But grace won't outpace the speed of your arrogance. And the only unpardonable sin that Scripture says exists is the sin where somebody willfully says to Jesus, thank you for your grace, but I'm going to try it my way. I do not want you. And they refuse to believe the gospel. That is the unpardonable sin. And here is a man who claims to be a Christian. He goes to church, but he's made up his own rules. He is the licentious. He's, he's not the rule keeper. He's the rule breaker. Listen, do what feels good. She was pretty. How about you? Do you have false notions of grace? Where's your leaven? Please, friends. Don't let it be behind a theology that says, oh gosh, grace is beautiful. He will always cover my sins. Hmm. But he may not cover your arrogance. Where's your leaven? Is it behind your busyness, your pride, your false notions of grace? Is it behind your religion? Listen, this town is full of religious people. You have to claim to be a Christian if you're a realtor in this town because uh, else you won't get any business. But so few people, when you ask them what is the gospel, they fall into the same teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It was the passage that Lance read for us earlier. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus reached the other side of the lake, they'd forgotten that they brought any bread. And Jesus said, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Notice that this idea of leaven, which is associated with sin and a sinful self-striving for salvation, is applied both to the irreligious in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and to the religious in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus says it is the leaven of the religious that is so dangerous because it masks itself as this religiosity that looks so good. Religious people try to prove themselves by their performance. I don't drink. I don't have sex outside of marriage. I go to church three times a week. Aren't I great, God? 
Don't you love me so much because of how faithful I am to you? And God says, even the most faithful Christian in the history of the world, against the backdrop of an infinitely holy God, still has sin over the banner of his life. And it is God saying to you, oh friends, oh friends, you never get beyond the gospel. The most religious and the most irreligious person in the world, they can both turn aside God for self-seeking strategies of salvation. One doesn't want anything to do with the church and one uses the church for their own ends. Do you? C.S. Lewis says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot understand what is meant by a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The reason why we're here and we're planting a new church in this town is not because we are better than everybody else. It's because we know that we're not. And we want to come again and again and again to the gospel that says it is only through the work of Jesus that we can possibly have the identity and the joy and the contentment that we were created to have, but that we lost in sin. And the church strives so much and burns so much emotional capital on separating ourselves from the bad, bad world. That is it any wonder that the sexual revolution or the discussion right now about same-sex marriage is rippling through the country? It's because the church has never talked well about sex. We've always just said to people, don't do it. A friend of mine, Ray Cortez, said that if you asked most unchurched people one word that describes what the church says about sex, it would be no. The truth is that the Bible says sex is a gift from God, and no one can have a higher view of sex than we have. God has designed something unbelievable. Jonathan Edwards says, God has given us his redundant bounty of many things for the delight of our senses, for our pleasure and our gratification. Christianity is not a thing that makes these things useless to us, nor does it cut us off from the enjoyment of them. We are to be a people who take back this sexual conversation because we say that sex within the confines of marriage is beautiful and right and good, and it is to be enjoyed. Jonathan Edwards continues. He didn't write this last month, by the way. He wrote this 300 years ago. That God has given us five wonderful senses and has made much provision for their gratification. And therefore, true Christianity allows us to take full comfort in our meat, in our drink, and all of our reasonable pleasures. They are to be enjoyed in conversation or in recreation. Listen, God wanted Israel to make bread. He gave them good The good use of creation to be enjoyed. He didn't just say, okay, be ready. You're going to fast. for No, he said, I want you to make bread. I care about your body. I'm not calling you to be aesthetic. And sometimes the church says, no, God has called us to suffer, to not enjoy anything. 
And God is saying, you're not reading the right book. You're like the scribes and the Pharisees that are making up 39 rules for the Sabbath when Jesus himself is the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm not going to go on too much longer about this, but, but more does need to be said. Listen, the issue of sexuality in our culture has been so politicized right now that it is so important that we as Christians have a clear ability to talk about sex in the confines of the way God created it to be enjoyed. John Walls of Houston Baptist University writes, Christians must recognize that the failure of the church to communicate its vision effectively is at least partially responsible for the sexual revolution in the first place. The failure to celebrate sexuality starting with its marital pleasures is part of a larger failure to teach and preach a strong creation theology that affirms the goodness of the physical world as God's gift to us. The sexual revolution is, dis- is a distorted version of affirming the goodness of sexuality in isolation from the larger truths that grounds its goodness in the beauty of God. Invariably, of course, when a fragment of the Christian vision of reality is broken off from the larger whole of the gospel of which it is a part, the fragment is not only twisted out of shape, but it's diminished and it's shriveled as well. Many of us have a hard time, we have a hard time enjoying God forever, as the confession says, because we just really don't believe that God is good. But the God we worship has given us all these things to enjoy. He calls us to enjoy sex within the confines of marriage. Married couples, you should have sex. Sorry, kids. You should enjoy it. He calls you to enjoy all things he's given you. You can enjoy drink, but do so in a way that honors him. Never as a way of escape. And therefore in moderation. But enjoy it. He's given it to you. Our aim is not to turn back to the 1950s morality of of, um, Ozzie and Harriet. We don't want to turn the clock back to the 50s. We actually want to turn it back all the way back to Eden. Because there man and woman were naked and unashamed. You do not get any more pleasure than that. Total emotional closeness. Perfect relational fellowship. Total social peace. Completely vulnerable. Isn't that beautiful? That's what the Lord has called us to do and to be. And for those who are married, sex is the expression of that. Not only does it happen in sex, it also happens in the context of corporate worship, where God draws his people to himself, where you're able to say yes to the Lord, yes, whatever you call me to do, I am your creation, you are my creator, I will obey you. I will fiercely consider the leaven of my life and I will get rid of it. Christian worship is a testimony to the reality of the living God in the midst of a world which does not know him. It is a protection against unworthy ideas of him. To be drawn back, friends, week after week into the context of Christian worship is to slowly blow the leaven out of your life. It is to slowly help you recognize through the preaching of the word, through the practice of the church calendar, through taking the Lord's Supper week after week, 
It is to help remind you that Jesus is the only place you can find the secret of joy and contentment. But what was it that the old wise Indian elder said? You can't find it because it's lodged behind your heart. And Jesus says that if you want to find the secret of joy and contentment, the first thing you have to do to find the leaven of your life is you have to be willing to die to the desires of your heart and trust that God is good. And that he gives you desires that are so much greater than that. And those are always found through repentance. Continually coming back to see that you don't have to pursue power or prestige or play your self-pity card so often. Why? Because Jesus, who is infinitely powerful, became a form of a servant for you. Who had infinite prestige at the right hand of the Father, left his throne above. So he could come and he could walk the dusty roads of Jericho for you and die the death that you should have died. It is Jesus who delivers you from your perfectionism because he himself was absolutely perfect in every way. And you know what? When he comes again, he promises that you will be too. And so in your striving to be perfect, repent of your self-seeking strategies to get God to love you and to recognize that you will be perfect in glory. When Christ comes again to make all things new, you will be fully restored and fully human, no longer just fallen humanity. So Jesus comes to give you the greatest joy in your life. But he calls us during the season of Lent to begin to weed out the leaven now, to come to him in joyful repentance, not wait, and to use the 40 days of Easter, the 40 days before Easter, rather, to practice the art of repentance. And to begin with a day of rest, to repent of our self-striving, to end the week for the Jews with a day of rest. And so I invite you this week, make a conscientious decision to rest. Practice the Sabbath. And use that Sabbath day to enjoy time with your family. Enjoy it. To turn off your phones. But most importantly, to see how Jesus, Jesus is the one who suffered the results of your pride. Jesus is the one who has come to bring you contentment and joy. And it's Jesus who doesn't want to take away your fun. You've already done a pretty good job of that. He wants to give it to you in himself. Are you with me? Wouldn't that be great to be a church like that in this town? When people looked at us, they said, you know what, I, I don't know if they're liberal or conservative. I just can't tell. They believe in inerrancy like conservatives, but I mean, they love like liberals. That'd be beautiful, wouldn't it? We don't care what people say of us. We just want to be people of the gospel who keep Jesus and his finished work for us at the center who enjoy his good creation and who are quick to obey him at his word like Israel was. We don't have time to let our dough rise. He's called us to the joy of repentance. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Would you help me to find our rest in you Lord, would you help us 
to see through the lens of the passage on the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and recognize that the sin can entangle the irreligious and the religious just as easily. And Lord, we confess that we sometimes make you out to be not the God of the universe, but a butler to serve our needs. Or we confess that we actually don't think about you very much at all. But you come to us in love. And you sing over us that I love you. I've given you everything for life and godliness. And if you do not understand why I've called you to obey my word, just trust me, you tell us. Oh, trust me. Because I'm offering you infinite delights in Jesus Christ. So Lord, thank you that you created your good creation good to be enjoyed. And would you help us to use it and to enjoy it in holiness, in your righteousness, in your joy. And therefore help us to be a church that's set apart, not because we want to be different, because we just want to simply be about the business of our King, Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.
The clearest picture that God gives his people of the Passover is the Lord's Supper. There's an interesting story in Ezra where after God's people are in exile, they come back and they reinstitute the Feast of, the, of Unleavened Bread and they practice the Passover again. What you're about to partake is the Lord's table. It is meant to change you. It is a means of grace. Jesus Christ is here spiritually. We are not Catholic in the sense that we believe that this becomes his body and his blood physically. But Jesus is here spiritually. He's with you and he invites you into communion with him. And when the exiles returned and Ezra reinstituted the feast of the Passover, he called his people to enjoy their holy callings. But the feast of the unleavened bread of the Passover required them to take a day off work. And I just want you to listen to what happened to the king of Assyria who was watching this happen before these Israelites. It says, on the 14th day of the first month, this is Ezra chapter 6, verse 19, the returned exiles kept the Passover. Remember, Passover is all three of those feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, and the first of first, feast of first fruits. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb. That's the 14th of Nisan. For all the returned exiles, for the fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful, and he had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Friends, trusting that Jesus is your Sabbath rest changes the way you understand your vocations. It, it changes the way you understand your calendar year. What you do on Sunday morning matters for your week. This meal was the meal that Jesus had with his disciples the night before he was betrayed. The night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, he took bread at the meal and he broke it and he said, Take and eat, this is my body. Eat of it all of you and do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, for the remission of your sins. For as often as you do eat of this bread and you do drink of this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes again. Christ, your Passover, was sacrificed for you and for you and for you. And he wants you to know the joy that comes to Christians by trusting his finished work. And so therefore, this table is not a table of perfect people. If you're perfect, you can let this table pass you by because you don't need it. But if you're broken and you know that Jesus is the only hope for your salvation, then you should run to this table, not walk. It's a celebration. But if you've not yet come to the place in your life when you trust in Christ and in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then we invite you to let the elements pass you by. You can stay seated, or if you want to come forward, you can come forward and we'll pray for you. But please don't partake, lest you eat and drink judgment on yourself like 1 Corinthians.